And if you're using a pew Bible, you're going to find James chapter 1 on page 1196. Several years ago, well, not that many years ago when I was in college, uh, I was driving someplace with a good friend of mine named John, and someone cut in front of me, cut me off. And it wasn't just a mild cut off, it was a violent cut off, and, and I had to slam on the brakes and jerk the wheel and uh, save our lives with my driving ability. And in that moment, right after I corrected the car, a torrent of rage and anger came out of me. And I unleashed verbally on the driver of that other vehicle. And they probably couldn't hear me. They could see me, I'm sure. Uh, But I let them know for sure what I felt about them, how I felt about their life choices, all kinds of things. And the first chance I had to stop and catch my breath, my buddy John said two words to me. He goes, Busby, overflow. Now here's what he means. John and I were familiar with this Bible verse, Matthew 12, 34, where Jesus says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So what John was doing was holding me accountable in the moment to respond in a way that reflected my love for Christ, not respond out of, a, out of my sinful anger. That's why John is no longer my friend. <laughs> I don't need that kind of positivity in my life. No, John and I are dear friends today. But the truth was, I responded to that minor crisis moment out of my sin, not out of my faith in Christ. Have you ever done something like that? I don't, I don't just mean while driving. The answer to all of us is yes. But I, I, let's, let's magnify the crisis a bit from some small minutia, like another bad driver, to the things that just waylay us crisis, the trial, the problems that press us on every side? Have you ever reacted to a crisis or a trial out of your sinfulness rather than out of your faith in Christ? Well, I I think it happens so often that we all tend to respond poorly, even sinfully at times in those moments. Our trials tend to beat us up they they just they do a number on us and oftentimes they stack on top of each other one after another after another and after a while when it seems like the trial is getting the upper hand when it seems like we're getting beaten to a pulp over and over again it can be easy for you and I to respond out of our sinful nature easy for us to take anger with God and turn it into our theology. Easy for us to justify horrible choices based on the circumstances that we're in. And this is nothing new. This is not a 21st century phenomenon. In fact, James writes to Christians in chapter 1 who are dealing with the very same issue. They are facing all kinds of trials, all kinds of difficulties, and inside those difficulties, some of them are making sinful choices. And so 
James, as we started last week at the beginning of chapter 1, he writes to encourage these hurting people, but he doesn't just encourage them by patting them on the back and saying, it's okay, you're going to make it, you're going to be all right. He doesn't do that. He pinpoints their heart, pinpoints their choices, and he presses in there to say, holiness is the way forward for all of God's suffering people. And so if you came in here today struggling, you came in here with a little bit of a limp, James is speaking specifically to you. Your faith is fried. Your endurance is gone. You're going to look in a mirror this morning. And James is going to press you. He's going to ask something of you. But I'm telling you, he is pointing you in the way of life. It's the way of Jesus Christ. My goal in preaching our passage today is to change your response to your trials from sinful indulgence to total faith in Christ. I want to do that by pointing out to you from this passage the three amazing things about God that you need to remember. Things you already know, but things that our suffering tends to obscure. Three things that are beautiful and true and incredible about our God that help us endure the hardest of times. So I want you to follow along with me as I read James chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 12. Here's what James says to the church. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. So James gives us three blessings from God to remember when it seems your trials have the upper hand. So if you're taking notes this morning, the first blessing James tells us to remember is this. Remember God's promise. In verse 12, James calls us to remember God's promise. Our passage opens with a beatitude. Did you catch that? We expect these only in the Gospels. But look, here we are in James James, the writer, starts off this passage with a beatitude. Now, a few weeks ago, we spent a Sunday morning looking at the beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. And there's something that's true about every beatitude. So There's a certain structure that defines beatitude. Do you remember that structure? There's two things you'll find in every beatitude. First, you will find a requirement. Second, you will find a reward. So beatitudes are not recommendations for how to live your life. It's not one option of many options. When you look at the list of Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, every one of those characteristics is to be true of God's people. We don't just cherry pick the ones that are good, the ones we like. That's a roadmap for every one of us. 
And so here, in verse 12, James gives us a beatitude that has a requirement and it has a promised reward. What's the requirement in James's beatitude? Blessed is the man or woman who perseveres under trial. There's the requirement. Perseverance under trial is what's expected, what is required of God's people. You're a follower of Jesus Christ. You face some garbage in your life. The requirement is for you to persevere through it. Do you remember how we defined perseverance last week? Perseverance is holding firm to the promises of God until every trial is finished. Perseverance is not, has nothing to do with how strong you are or you're a level 12 Christian. Or, or I, it's got nothing to do with your might or your ability. Everything to do with the focus of your faith. When your faith is focused on Jesus Christ, you persevere. It's His promises that get you through. So none of us perseveres because we're strong. We persevere because God is strong. And so here James tells us that the requirement is that we persevere, that we look to God when the hard day comes. And what's the key to persevering? In verse 12, he gives us a very important hint. What do we have to do to persevere? Look at the end of verse 12. He says, God, or that person who perseveres will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. The one who perseveres under trial and those who love God, that last phrase in verse 12, that's the same person. The one who perseveres is the one who loves God. The one who loves God in the midst of the trial is the one who will persevere. Now, if, if you ever do a soul check when you are in the pressure cooker, you might evaluate yourself and say, you know what, I'm not strong. I'm really angry. I feel like all of this is unfair. I'm not seeing my way through this. I feel like I don't have any wisdom. But the one question you can ask to diagnose your perseverance is this. Do I love the Lord? If I love the Lord, I might be a hot mess in all these other areas, but if I love the Lord, I'm persevering as He has called me to. I'm trusting in His promises until every trial is finished. If your love is intact, your perseverance is intact. Now, it may seem a bit cold or just idealistic to say that perseverance is required. I mean, doesn't that seem a bit heartless? Doesn't it seem just a bit pie in the sky? Well, it's not heartless. It's hopeful. It's hopeful because of Easter. Here's why we can persevere. Christ died and rose again. And if He lives today... And there's nothing you're going to face that's going to change that. Nothing that's going to change the verdict of victory. He's already won. Death is already defeated. There is no enemy you face that is greater than Christ crucified and risen again. Not one. So when Paul, or excuse me, when James says persevere under trial, he's stating what is the easiest, clearest thing to do for every follower of Jesus Christ. Not easy in that you're not going to cry. Not easy in that there won't be wounds. I mean easy in the sense of assurance. Perseverance is not in doubt for those who trust Christ Jesus. 
It's not a 50-50 proposition as to whether or not you will make it. When you love the Lord, you're going to make it because Christ is alive. That does not change. And so guess what the outcome is when you persevere under trial? If that's the requirement, what's the reward? Well, verse 12, the reward is this. Those who persevere under trial, when they've stood the the test, will receive the crown of life that God has promised. What's the crown of life? Well, this is James' poetic way of describing eternal life. Similar language is used elsewhere in the New Testament. Four different times in other New Testament letters. In 1 Corinthians, Paul uses the phrase, the incorruptible crown. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, it's the crown of rejoicing. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, it's the crown of righteousness. In 1 Peter chapter 5, it's the crown of glory. This is not like some king or queen's crown. This is, uh, in Greek culture, it's, it's a laurel that's placed on the head of a victor, perhaps someone who won a race or some military hero. So this word picture that James gives us, you're given the crown of life, well, it tells us that the Christian who comes through trials with their love for God intact will be rewarded and honored with eternal life. So you don't go through trials pointlessly, but instead purposefully with the goal of everlasting life with God in sight. There's something about eternal life that makes a difference today. It's the reason Christians grieve differently. And it's the reason Christians suffer differently from the rest of the world. It's the reason we possess supernatural joy in the face of hardships. We know the story does not end with sickness or trials or tears or a funeral. The promise of a future reward gives you and I present day strength as we look to Jesus Christ in our trials You've got to remember his promise. It makes a difference this day and adds fuel to your endurance. There's a second blessing James wants you to remember when it seems like your trials are getting the upper hand. He wants you to remember God's character. Verses 13 through 15, remember God's character. So verse 13 is a pivot point. Up to this point, James has been talking about people who face trials and persevere. That's even what we looked at last week at the beginning of chapter 1. But now, verse 13, he changes his focus to those who face trials and abandon perseverance. So look at verse 13 with me. James writes this, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. Now again, here's a situation where James feels herky-jerky in his subject matter. Just feels like you you go down one road and then he he hangs a left and takes you down another road. There doesn't seem to be a lot of connection. Well, here's where English is not our friend, but a little bit of Greek uh, would be our friend. The word tempted in verse 13 and the word tempting, those come from the same word as trial in the Greek. The difference depends on the context, on the usage of the word. And so there's a continuity of thought here from verse 12 to verse 13. James doesn't suddenly begin change subject matter and start talking about temptations disconnected from our trials. 
trials and temptations are connected to one another. So verse 13, no one should say, God is tempting me. So what's happening in this situation? Well, uh, what's going on is a situation that's common to all of us. It's what I described at the beginning of our time together. In the midst of trials, rather than persevering by trusting in the promises of God, we make sinful choices. When the time comes for us to own our sin, someone holds us accountable. Why, why do you live this way? What we do then is turn and blame God. In the scenario James is describing, the people he's writing to go so far as to say this, God tempted me. He put this before me. He enticed me. And so if, if I've chosen sin, it's not my fault. It's God's fault. He's the tempter. I'm the victim in this. James tells his readers that this is lame logic for two reasons. Still in verse 13. Reason number one, this doesn't make any sense. God cannot be tempted by evil. Second reason this makes no sense. God does not tempt anyone. Since it's impossible for God to be tempted by sin himself, it's even more impossible for him to be an ally of sin and then to use temptation in some way to, to plot our downfall or to bring us defeat. Now to be sure, God almost certainly brings trials our way. But God always brings trials for our success. He doesn't bring these hard times for our sin Remember the opening words of this letter, that God's bringing us through trials to refine our faith, to give us a pure joy that endures through every trial, every situation. So God is not the one who's going to take sin, dangle it in front of us to tempt us. That's not the way he works. So who can you blame for your sin? James tells us, verse 14, each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he's dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So where does the temptation to sin come from? Well, James says it comes from our own evil desires. You and I are by nature objects of wrath, Ephesians 2. This is who we are at our core in our DNA. You and I are sinners through and through, dead in our sin. And you can try to blame God. And you can try to blame Satan. And you can try to blame other people in your life. But we cannot escape the inevitable conclusion, I am solely responsible for my sin and nobody else is to blame. Eve sinned and blamed the serpent. Adam sinned and blamed Eve. Aaron, the high priest, made a golden calf and blamed the people. The people of Israel refused to enter the promised land and blamed God. Jonah was angry and blamed God. Job was indignant and blamed God. But our trials are never justification for our sin. There's no one to blame but me. Now, I want to be careful here. 
I'm not trying to say that your particular hardship is not a big deal and you just need to get over it. For sure, we face certain trials in our lives that absolutely affect our behavior, our thinking, our outlook on the world. But even when we have been victims of such injustice, James speaks to you and says you're you're not exempt from this reality. The way of life is the way of Christ. Under every injustice you've suffered, every time you've been victimized, there's a way through this and it's the way of life in Christ. If I use what I've suffered as excuse for sin, what am I attaching myself to? I'm attaching myself to death. And those events continue to victimize me when I give myself to this ungodly way of thinking, speaking, living. But there's a different way. James doesn't give us this instruction just to kick us in the teeth and say, you're to blame. He's pointing you and I in the way of life, in the way of Christ. But to do that, he's got to make it clear how serious our sin is. After desires conceived, verse 15, it gives birth to sin. Sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. So evil abides in us as desire, and then desire gives birth to sin. Sin, when given free reign in our lives, leads to death. So what James is saying then, for example, is that if you are an alcoholic, there may be all these circumstances that you point to to say this is why. But the responsibility for your addiction is your own. Your anger, your foul mouth, your affair, your drug abuse, your bitterness, all that comes from me. And if it wasn't that kind of sin, I would find something else to attach my sinful heart to. It's not hard for me to drum up sin. So what do you do if you find yourself in this position where you recognize, I have made sinful choices. No one else is responsible except for me. What do you do with that realization? I think what James is telling us here is to remember God's character. We remember our character, sinners through and through, if that's who we are, who is God? He's the God who loves sinners. James doesn't write this as condemnation. He writes this as a call to life and forgiveness and hope and mercy. God knew your sin was your fault long before you did. And he doesn't arrive at our realizations at the same time we do. So maybe here's this epiphanal moment in your life where you realize, I, I'm responsible for this mess God knew that long ago. He knew how long, he knew it long before you did. He knew how you'd be wounded in your trial. He knew the sin that would come from you as a result. He knew the lame logic you would use to justify that sin. And he knew the moment when you would see your sin for how truly deadly it is and see God for how truly wonderful he is. So when we realize our sinful nature, we also remember God's saving 
forgiving, loving nature. So it's time to stop blaming God. So many people have their view of God warped because of trials and difficulties we face. James is making the argument. Do not let those things twist your theology. Rather, root yourself in the character of a God who never gives up on you. God who loves you even in the mess you've created yourself. So when it seems like our trials are having their way with us, we remember God's character. We remember his promise to give us eternal life. There's a third blessing James wants us to remember. That third blessing, remember God's gifts. Verses 16 through 18. Remember God's gifts. I love verse 16. It's at the same time a punch in the gut and a warm hug. But what's the punch in the gut? Don't be deceived. He's saying he's got deceived readers who think God is to blame. God's the reason I've been tempted. He's at fault for my mistakes. That's not a viable way of thinking or viewing the world. That's deception. Don't be deceived. That's the punch in the gut. What's the warm hug? My dear brothers. (laughs) Right? It's a familial term. He's showing his closeness, his care, his concern for these people. It's a term of affection. James isn't some heartless jerk. He's doing what all loving people do. He speaks hard truth while affirming his love for the readers. Do you have anyone in your life who has permission to do that? Who can speak hard truth to you and you will receive it as love? I hope you do. Otherwise, it's a miserable way to live your life thinking you are right and everyone else is wrong. We all need a teachable spirit for the sake of our sanctification. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Verse 17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. Everything good comes from God. This is James' argument. There's nothing good that comes from any other source. So every good thing you have and the good things you don't yet have And the good things that you've misunderstood as bad things, all that goodness comes from one source. All of that comes from God. That goodness never comes from the sin that we would put ourselves into in the midst of a trial. Nothing good is going to come from saying God tempted me or God's to blame or someone else is to blame. Nothing good comes from there. If anything good is going to come, anything perfect is going to come only from God. And so James uses some more poetic language to describe God in verse 17. He calls him the father of the heavenly lights. This is a way of describing God's constant and unchanging character. If he's the father of the heavenly lights, that's to say he's the creator. He's the one who hung the Pleiades, put Orion in the sky. The moon orbits the earth. God set it on its course. That's the kind of power God has and what His nature is like. When you look at the heavenly lights, there's this unchanging nature to their course. That's what God is like. He doesn't change. He's single-minded in His desire to give good gifts and to give perfect gifts. 
He's not like shifting shadows. Right? That's what he says at the end of verse 17. He does not change like shifting shadows. Heavenly lights are constant and unchanging. Shadows that they create are subject to change with every passing of the big hand on the clock, with every sunrise and sunset. You never know. But God's not like that. Steady and faithful, single-minded in His desire to give good things and to always give good things. We've got this little talk back thing we do at times in our church and you'll know it when I say it and I invite you to participate as a reflection of our belief in the unchanging good character of our God I would say God is good let's try that again wow that was lousy (laughs) embarrassing wake up your neighbor you know this routine I wish I had some Bible readers in here who believed these things. It's okay. I won't tell anyone that you talk in church. You can keep your New England reputation in check. Participate with me. God is good. And all the time. There you go. Here it is right from James. God is single-minded in His goodness to His children. It never changes. It never changes. He's not a God whose attitude or demeanor changes on whims or you've done something wrong and so now He's going to zap you from on high. He is single-minded in His desire to give us good things, good and perfect gifts. And that means even in the midst of the trial, God is giving us the good and perfect things. And is there any evidence we can point to that would support the claim that God gives all good and perfect gifts. Any evidence of all? Well, look at verse 18. He says, James says, God chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. How good is God? He is so good that even though we were dead in sin, that even though you didn't choose him, he chose you. And he chose to give you birth through the word of truth. What's the word of truth? James is such a poet. uses all these metaphors. The word of truth is the story we tell every Sunday when we gather to celebrate. It's the story that God made a way for us through Jesus Christ. Jesus is God in the flesh. How do we know that? Well, we know that because he's born of a virgin. And he lives a perfect, sinless life. He's not the man chosen by God. Jesus is not the man who becomes God. He is not more than a man, less than a God. He is fully God, robed in flesh. And the reason he comes to this place, the reason he did not cling to his glory and instead came to the humility of earth, the reason he did that was to die in your place for your sin. This is the word of truth that God is so good, gives such perfect things that he will rescue you from the death you are in because of your sin. You are to blame. You've made the mistakes. He's the one you've sinned against. And yet, the word of truth says he's come to rescue us. He loves you this much. Jesus died the death you deserve, I deserve. Three days later, he rose from the dead. That's why his death is effective. Because he's alive. If he died, he's just like every other person who lives and dies. 
There's nothing true about him or trustworthy about him if he's a pile of bones in a grave somewhere. But he rose from the dead. And he promises us in his word of truth, if we will believe in him, turn to him in faith, we will be saved. You're not saved because you're baptized as an infant. You're not saved because you take the mass. You are not saved because you are a moral conservative or a moral liberal. You are saved because you trust in Christ and Christ alone for your salvation. That's the word of truth. So when James wants to give an example of God's good and perfect gifts, he doesn't say, consider your livestock. Consider your wardrobe. Look at how sweet your job is. There's a lot of good things we can point to, and without a doubt, God is the one who gives us livestock and jobs and wardrobes. God does that. But James goes to the pinnacle. You You want evidence that God is good and perfect even in your trial? Look to your own salvation. That story is all the evidence that you need. James goes on to tell his readers at the end of verse 18. He says, God has done this, given us life through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Here's what I think James is saying here. I think he's saying to his initial readers, we who are saved were the first fruits of a great harvest to come. God's agenda is to give good and perfect gifts evidenced in salvation of many, many people from many places and many languages. And that's how history is going to unfold as God redeems his people. So when you are hard-pressed on every side, remember God's good and perfect gift. Remember your salvation. It is not some small thing. If he has saved you, he will not release you. If he conquered death, then whatever trial you're facing is already defeated. If your trial takes your life, you win. To be absent from the body is to be present with Christ. The crown of life is yours. Christianity is never pitched as a promise to escape difficulties. But as a promise that Christ will bring us through the consequences of our sin, and every manifestation of sin that we encounter in this world. Jesus promises his disciples in John 16, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. We remember God's good gifts, especially our own salvation. So the passage we've studied this morning, fixes our memory. It gives us a concrete path to walk on. When we're trying to make sense of the mess around us and and our circumstances make us question things about God that we've always otherwise known to be true, James anchors you in these gospel memories. We need to remember God's promises. Remember His character. Remember His gifts. He gives blessings to those who persevere. He never tempts us with evil or works our defeat. He's the one who saved us and will bring us through with every good and perfect gift. So James is telling us to look to the Lord on our hard days. Not so that we can shake our fists at Him and blame Him, but rather that we might remember how wonderful He is, how strong, how wise, how gentle, how patient.
For some of you, this passage is going to require a response of kneeling. Because you've recognized I've not taken responsibility. I've made every excuse. This was done to me. I, this, I've suffered this. These things have happened. And so you've justified because of these circumstances anti-Christ behavior, sinful behavior that, that's, that has no place in the life of a believer. So when we read James's words, this is where he presses in and says, look, I know it's hard. I know you, you feel beat to a pulp. But the path of life starts with repentance from your sin. And so for some of you today, it may require you to kneel in confession and repentance as you lift your eyes to the God who gives all good things, who will bring you out of that trajectory of death and put you on the path to life. For others of you today, this passage might bring you to your feet. James points feeble Christians to Jesus. You walked in here this morning facing all kinds of difficulty. And the likelihood is this, when you walk out of this door, nothing in those circumstances has changed. It is entirely unlikely that there's some secret phone call you didn't get because your phone's on silent like it is every Sunday that's going to tell you, hey, your problem you had an hour ago has now just vaporized. So we walked in with this trial. You're going to walk out with the trial. But you're going to be different. And you're different because you know that in Christ you persevere. You know that God is good and trustworthy. You know that he saved you and he won't let you down. The enemy has been exposed. He is weak. He is crushed. He is defeated. And you brother and sister Christian, have been granted the crown of life because of your faith in Christ. You walked in this morning with a complaint, but you will leave this morning with praise on your lips. Perhaps praise from Ephesians chapter 3, which says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine. Do you believe that about Jesus Christ? To him who can do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work in us to him. Be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. And all God's people said.